Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, August 30th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so uh, t- today, tomorrow, mar- will mark the conclusion of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, supposedly. I don't really believe it will. Uh, I mean, it may nominally, and then we'll have to go back in and out and in and out in whatever way we that, that means anything. We don't even know, but... Um, we will we will be in the bizarre position of having our military officially removed while uh, Americans and uh, people who have the right to be in America are left stranded uh, in in Afghanistan. Do I have that correct? Just say that's yep. a fair description. Okay. Yeah, no one disputes um, that. I mean, we don't. We, they dispute the numbers. We don't know what I mean, the depends. numbers are. I didn't they, mention no numbers, numbers, so no one But they're, they are saying something rather definitive, at least the State Department is in the Pentagon, regarding the number of American citizens, a very important qualification. They're passport holders. They say it's in the low hundreds now of people who want to get out. Presumably others don't, um, and some probably don't, but I, I don't trust any of those numbers at all. Excluded from those tallies uh, are non-citizens, uh, legal permanent residents, people whose home is here, whose life is here, whose family is here, whose bank accounts are here, whose job is here. Uh, green card holders, they're Americans in all but passport. And uh, eligible SIVs, visa holders, non-visa holders, people who helped us out who might, you know, interpreters who didn't actually work for the American government who do are eligible to get out, that sort of thing. Those aren't included in that tally. So, um, I mean, I, I We've said so much, it's it's hard even to find vocabulary to talk about what horror uh, is is going on here. Um, and we're just going to have to sit and, and, and watch and hope that uh, things uh, don't get worse and that we're, we don't see bloodbaths and all of that. And we may not, and we probably will, and, and we will have to deal with the emotions and rages and uh, problems that are caused by all that. I want to discuss with you guys um, the really remarkable piece by my, my, my old friend and roommate, Robert Kagan in the Washington post a couple of days ago, which is a, uh, a long essay about America's involvement in Afghanistan uh, that functions as a complete corrective of the record of the last 20 years, something we've been trying to do on this podcast for the last two, two and a half weeks about how, no, we did not go in Afghanistan with confidence and joy with the idea of thinking that we were going to install a democracy there. We went there out of um, fear of, of, of uh, growing terrorist attacks after 9-11 and that the only way to make sure that that didn't happen, to also to take revenge about 9-11, to um, extirpate the very specific threat of Afghanistan as a base of operations for terrorist groups after 9-11, and that left with a uh, regime that we had uh, removed, the Taliban, uh, we had a series of options about which nobody was particularly confident or comfortable but how to handle the aftermath. And we took the option that was seemed best available to us at the time, which was 
to try to stand up civil society as best we could in the way that we know how to do that technically, which is, you know, build schools, help create, you know, potable water systems and, you know, help people establish, uh, you know, uh, functioning bureaucracies to the extent that uh, they can be established and then help them plan elections and all of that. And in fact, the first four or five years seem to go well. But as but as uh, Bob notes uh, time and again in this piece, the idea that Americans were walking around saying this is all going to be just wonderful was is a complete illusion and, and a complete misrepresentation of the past. People talked about Afghanistan very plainly as though there were incredible challenges there. We were doing what we could. We were hopeful that things would get better, but that we nobody sold a bill of goods to the American people, not the Bush administration, not the Obama administration, not the Trump administration, on how this was, you know, we were all, everything was going to be great. Um Everyone went before Congress, said we have huge challenges. This is going well. That's not going so well. And this whole line that it was like the Pentagon Papers, that in private they were talking about how terrible everything was, but in public they were putting happy faces on everything, is just a complete lie that is actually not true. We were dealing with a threat. We took care of the threat. We were then left with a responsibility that we handled as we handle most things with varying degrees of competence and an inability to think in the long term. Abe? Yeah, the one of the things, one of the many things that have been driving me crazy about our withdrawal here is that essentially the main argument for the withdrawal, forgetting about the the, the defenses of all the incompetencies that, that, have, that the withdrawal ha, has entailed, the main argument is that we can't afford to waste any more time, money, and American lives on a fantasy uh, that uh, we, we can turn Afghanistan into a thriving liberal democracy like the U.S., which is, as I've said time and again, is not what we have been trying to do there. Um, the lies and the happy talk have come entirely from the cut-and-run side. They're the ones who have said, this is going to be better, uh, Afghanistan is not going to fall. We are going to get everyone out. Uh, we are working well with the Taliban. Uh, they are the ones who have thrown up um, a complete facade about the horrors that have gone on throughout this, uh, that we will be able to have uh, over the horizon uh, intelligence that will allow us to uh, act over the horizon uh, to, to fight terrorist threats in the future. They are the ones entirely who are making up a fantasy story, and we are watching it crumble day after day, hour after hour, news story after news story in real time. I mean, Noah, having spoken about this, uh, Bob Kagan, you know, sort of history of the last 20 years, as I did, I think it's also safe to say that Afghanistan was in much better shape before we pulled out than it was 20 years before when it was being run by the Taliban who were destroying 1500 year old, uh, you know, uh, religious monuments, uh, were, uh, you know, uh, turning women into, into chattel property, uh, you know, terrorizing populations, uh, you know, 
any way you slice it, uh, all of the difficulties in Afghanistan over the last 20 years pale beside the heart, beside the nightmare regime that was there in the first place and that had we not gone in and removed it would have, I assume, become sort of like a second, uh, you know, second Iran. I mean, it would have been a fundamentalist, a barbaric fundamentalist regime with its, you know, with its jackboot on, you know, on the face, stomping on the face of the Afghan people forever. So on the one hand, we did not go in to, you know, create a Western style democracy and failed. We went in to extirpate a terrorist threat, which we did vastly more successfully than anybody would have anticipated would have been the case on September 12th, 2001, that we would never be hit again by a major terrorist attack on the homeland in the subsequent 20 years. And on the other hand, that's why we went in and that succeeded, that mission succeeded, and we'll see whether it will continue to succeed now that we pulled out. And then, but secondarily, we did bring a better life to the Afghan people. That's the part that is driving me, that you can't, it's not all of one or another. It's not, you know, they either have to be, you know, the People's Republic of Santa Monica or Oceania Oceania in, in 1984. These are not the poles of existence. Yeah, I suppose I'm going to do my best to summarize uh, a rational argument against our position. Um, so, yes, operationally, we were successful at smashing the Taliban and banishing them to the provinces, but we were not successful at destroying the Taliban. And we were not successful at destroying Al Qaeda either in Pakistan, which uh, was their chief benefactor, and uh, our reluctance to confront Pakistan over this, even up to and including the wake of the Abbottabad raid, which exposed the complicity of the Pakistani government and the ISI thoroughly. We still were reluctant to uh, put significant pressure on our our partners in in Islamabad. And that would have left this condition to continue. And in Afghanistan, where Al-Qaeda and Taliban remnants lasted throughout the war. Uh, likewise, and our friend uh, over at National Review, Michael Brendan Doherty, has a piece on this, which is provocative and um, interesting, insofar as he alleges that democracy promotion abroad uh, fails and is uh, detrimental to the American national psyche. Um, it is less, you know, less, less a matter of uh, the the tranquility and peace and prosperity of the Afghan people. And it is a corrosive force on the American body politic, which leaves us with less, uh, uh, less faith in the competence of our elected officials, less faith in American government. It's generally a failed project and failed projects sap the national project of, uh, or the national, uh, ethos of, of, uh, uh, understanding for the American, uh, national project and, uh, support for it. So generally it's, it's all around, bad. And to continue in something that is a failure is, uh, you know, just a lack of imagination and with serious tangible downsides. That's the argument. Um, I don't think it's sufficient to answer your, your claim, which is that on every measure, qualitative and quantitative, whatever you want to do, you know, to measure uh, the situation in Afghan and Central, Afghanistan and Central Asia and American national security broadly, all of those things were improved as a result of our involvement in Central Asia. Now you can argue about your various degrees, but I don't think any rational person would say things are worse today than they were in 1999 
for either the Afghans or for Americans and, and the West. So, yes, I don't think that's a sufficient answer to your question. It's a theoretically plausible answer to your question, but it is steeped in so much theory and academic, uh, an academic understanding of how American politics plays out, national security plays out, that it renders it something of a of an argument that you can have in it. You can have in a uh, in a faculty lounge, but not necessarily in the Situation Room. Christine, uh, I got in huge trouble about 16, 17 years ago. I wrote a column about Iraq for the New York Post in which I said, we know how to win the war in Iraq. We know how to win the war in Iraq. You do what people do when they are savage. This is what you learn from the Bible and from the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides and everything. You go in and you kill everybody under 30. You kill every male between the ages of 18 and 35 who resists you. That's how you win the war in Iraq. How do you win the war against the Taliban? You kill tens of thousands of people indiscriminately. Men, women, children. You do, You blow up caves. You level villages. You do whatever you can. You know, you do it without any regard to any sense of, you know, what might be considered moral, just war proportion. That's how you win the war in that sense. And we cannot do that. We are not built to do that. And indeed, the Thucydides says that when the Athenians finally embraced the savagery necessary to win the Peloponnesian War, they lost their souls. That's, that, that is the story of the history of the Peloponnesian War. That's the Melian debate uh, in, in the middle of, of, of the book. So uh, what is left for us? I mean, Michael Brennan Doherty, who is a friend of mine and whom I have great respect for, is f- I wouldn't exactly say he's a pacifist. He's not a pacifist, but he does not believe in – he believes that these are these missions are all doomed to failure and we should never engage in them in the first place for the most part. But we also can't do that either, right? Right. Can we not respond to 9-11? Can we not – you know – we are faced with choices, real world choices at the moment of choice. You know, at any given, on any given day, you can go one direction or the other direction. You're not allowed to pull out from 30,000 feet, look down and say, I don't know, because 17 years from now, there may be political discomfort expressed about X, Y, or Z. Well, I was, I was remembering that right after 9-11, there were a, there were a handful of rather prominent um, people on the left, one of whom I, I believe was Gloria Steinem, feminist Gloria Steinem, who posted all kinds of, you know, uh, overly wrought statements about how what we really should be doing is bombarding the Taliban with antibiotics and, and social support, because the only reason they were acting out so violently was because, you know, that they were they were deprived of the sort of comforts of the West. It's not because they hated us, hated our way of life, and wanted to see that way of life destroyed wherever they had the power and means to do so. It's that they just really wished to, to be more like us, so we should help them become more like us. So in a weird way, there's a mirror image on the kind of uh, pacifist-leaning left of, of the same thing that they criticize people who want to go to war to protect our way of life uh, argue. But what really has struck me in the last few days, in the last few weeks in particular, is this particular surreal feeling of how little we actually know because the Biden administration's lack of communication and deliberate miscommunication on what's going on. And at the same time, they are asking us 
to trust their judgment about a terrorist organization. And sometimes when I listen to Jake Sullivan and and uh, Tony Blinken and President Biden speak about the Taliban, they sound like a weird kind of counselor who, you know, the Taliban is the abusive spouse, the the Afghan people are the the abused spouse. And they're like, you know what, I know this person was beating you for, you know, 20 years ago, but but get back together with them. They've totally changed. We know they've totally changed. Look, they're even working with us in, 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 in trying to build this new world because we have to leave, but you can trust them. And there's no evidence that they've provided that we should trust them. And the recent attacks this weekend where we, you know, we sent some drone strikes, it's, and the, uh, certainly the attack on the, on the airport suggests if they're supposedly in charge and we can supposedly trust them, how come these security breaches happen in the first place? Uh, I really feel like we are being asked, the American people are being asked to trust the Biden administration's assessment of the Taliban in the same way we were when Trump made it, it, this, this started with Trump, obviously. But we shouldn't and can't because we have the weight of historical evidence of the past 20 years compared to what came before. And, and we should be continuing to ask these questions. But the, the, the information flow from the Biden administration has been so inconsistent and so deliberately misleading. You'll hear news reports on the ground saying SIV holders, pa- American passport holders are being turned away. They can't get out. They want to get out. And then you have the, you know, administration officials going on national news programs and going, oh, no, anyone who wants to leave can leave. We're going to help them. We know nothing about, for example, is the Biden administration going to fulfill their promise to rescue these people by going to Congress and asking for clandestine exfiltration missions because they need permission to do that, to allow the CIA and operatives to go in and get the remaining Americans. We don't know. They haven't said anything about this. It's all glib rhetoric. Before we go into the administration's hideous dissembling over the weekend, I do want to just Mark, one one little point about this theoretical debate we're having about what what to do in Afghanistan, what should we have done, what could we have done. And there's a lot of ahistorical uh, revisionism of what the American um, approach to this conflict was beginning on September 12, 2001. The backdrop to this was uh, you, you, the complete failure of Bill Clinton's national security policy. There was no appetite for, indeed, it was contemptuous to suggest that we could execute some sort of a smash and grab operation that, you know, what would be sufficient to this is a 1996 style cruise missile strike on a pharmaceutical factory in Khartoum. Uh, That was, that was what we all understood to be wildly recklessly insufficient to the scale of the threat that we faced that morning. And what was necessary, indeed what the nation committed itself to in Congress and, and in the executive branch was to nation build, not to create civil society necessarily, although that was an incidental aspect of our project, but to create a stable government that was not actively supportive, uh, supporting of threats to the West, which is what we're about to get again in Kabul, um, and w- w- which will prove as as much of, a, of an imminent threat to American national interests as it did in 1997, 1998, Um the notion here that we could have just done something differently, A, wouldn't have been, wouldn't have met the scale of the challenge, and B, wouldn't have been supported by the American people. The American public would have rejected that. I think, I just want to add to the, the larger debate here about what, what's left for us to do. Um, um, and it's a, I want to say something that's, that's often tricky to say because it sounds like you're posing as a tough guy or something, which is uh, very far from what I am or what I'm doing. But don't you think there's a sense, and this this was certainly the case around uh, 2001, but it's you know so much more advanced now that 
there is just a growing number of Americans who fail to see the necessity of war in any case, uh, of boots on the ground at all. Um, it, it is, a, a, I think, a, a paradoxical um, result of our success in so many ways, uh, a life of so many comforts, not only where suffering has been reduced, but where even inconvenience has been you know, brought down to such a minimum that to think to have to go back to something so uh, savage for under any circumstances um, seems kind of unthinkable. And if you look at the culture where speech is violence and everyone is, is, is supposedly being preyed upon, we have so defined violence down that the idea of um, having to commit uh, and justly um, actual violence, I think, has become so unthinkable. And part of why we're, we are pulling out of Afghanistan, I would argue almost entirely why we're pulling out of Afghanistan, is because this idea any war is suddenly a forever war and is hopeless. And uh, any, any U.S. military deaths, uh, no, no, no matter how relatively small, and they are all horrible tragedies, um, any any military deaths are, are are just cannot be countenanced, and so the answer is not much is left to us if if if, if we reject that altogether. I mean, I think this is an important. I want to uh, provide you with a tale of two op eds to help out this analogy. Uh, on February twentieth, twenty twenty, the New York Times published an op ed called. Uh, what we the Taliban want, deputy leader of the Taliban, Sirajuddin Haqqani, uh, who is now back in, in is back in Kabul, publishes an op-ed explaining what it is that the Taliban want. A lot of us said, "Oh, that's great! Really wonderful of you to publish an op-ed by this you know force that is trying to kill Americans in Afghanistan." But uh, you know, free speech, whatever, not much controversy. Three months later, Senator Tom Cotton publishes an op-ed in the New York Times uh, saying that uh, the military was needed to uh, come out um, and deal with the urban, uh, the disasters in cities following the George Floyd protests. And the entire staff of the New York Times says, Tom Cotton made me, makes me feel unsafe. Tom Cotton has written something and I feel unsafe and he has made me unsafe. And a hundred, 400 people had a, you know, seen in the times newsroom and, uh, first James Bennett, the op editor said, I didn't do it. <laughs> he did it. 25 year old Adam Rubenstein did it. Barry Weiss did it. This Brett, everybody did it except me. And nonetheless, he had to resign because in American contemporary culture, uh, you 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 accuse people of committing violence who are not committing violence, and then as long as it doesn't, you know, as long as it serves your purposes, you you uh, you celebrate violence that's real, and then you 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 anathematize violence that's that that doesn't exist. So uh, it's wonderful that people are rioting in Portland, but it's not okay to write an op-ed arguing that that violence should be met with, uh, you know, using the American military to pacify things. Um, and uh, it is, uh, it makes you feel unsafe to read something that you don't like, 
But um, it doesn't matter if you are publishing propaganda by somebody who was actually involved in a military effort to kill Americans. That makes Abe's point, I think, very plainly that uh, the New York Times, for example, did not feel as though it was somehow complicit in the Taliban effort to murder Americans by publishing an op-ed by Haqqani. And yet it had to um, acknowledge its complicity in the idea Tom Cotton was a danger to people. Tom Cotton, who did, you know, tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan defending this country before he became a congressman and then a senator, is somehow a threat to woke millennials working at the New York Times who have literally never faced a day's moment or a day's fear of crime or been inconvenienced in any way, shape, or form except theoretically. And yet actual violence they're fine with as long as it doesn't target anything that, that, that bothers them. And it's important just to add to that, that Tom Cotton's position in that op-ed was supported by a majority of Americans in public opinion polls. What he said was actually what most Americans felt. So it wasn't even as if it was some radical extremist opinion. It was the mainstream expression of concern about disorder in in our cities. One of my favorite uh, works of social science of the last generation or last 40 years is a book called Murder in New York City by uh, uh, Eric, the late Eric Monconan. And he describes a pattern, a social pattern over the course of the hundred years that when New York became an incorporated city from 1898 onward, which is there would be a crime surge and there would be, and the public would demand a crackdown. And then there would be a crackdown and the crackdown would be successful. And then people would say, eh, you've gone too far. This is, you're really being mean to people and you're arresting my son and my son didn't do anything. And you're, you know, you're cracking heads and the cops are bad. And then the cops would pull back and there would be a pullback and then there would be a crime surge and then there would be a crackdown. And then there would be a revolt against the crackdown. And this pattern reemerged seven or eight times over the course of those hundred years. And then we, of course, have seen this in the last decade in New York City and, and, and elsewhere. And I think you can say, to some extent, that that is the story that we are telling here, that in fact, the last 30 years have seen this, until really a year, year and a half ago, have seen this incredible lessening of a feeling of insecurity among the American people from crime in, in our streets and, and, and the crime wave. And you're not worried your car is going to get stolen. You're not worried your radio is going to get broken. And you're not worried your house is going to get burgled, really. Not that much, right? You're more afraid of utterly random events, you know, a school shooting or, or even a terrorist bombing or something like that, something that is un, almost by definition undefendable against, which is even scarier in some sense, except you're not menaced, like your daily life isn't surrounded by menace. And one of the uh, consequences of this is, I think, this entirely abstract feeling that uh, there is no risk, there are no threats, there is no real threat. The only threats are theoretical to your well-being, to how you feel, to whether someone writes something that makes you nervous because you don't have the experience, as I did growing up in the 1960s and 1970s, of being actually afraid a lot of the time that you were walking on the street when it was night. I mean, you were afraid, like or you were cautious or you were prudent or you had your adrenaline system up to make sure that you weren't 
I mean, I've said this also, you know, I was mugged four times by the time I was 14. Granted, I lived in a particularly bad neighborhood and all of that. But I mean, that was not an uncommon experience. Car thefts, burglaries, robberies. I mean, that is what life was like. And now we've had the inestimable benefit of this cessation, really until recently, of these kind of threats. And as a result, yeah, people think about these things as though the world is, you know, suburban Kansas City, you know, so you're living in Lawrence, Kansas. And so, you know, Kabul is Lawrence. Don't go in there. You know, I mean, you know, what are they going to do? You're just going to get it's just going to get messy or something like that. I mean, this is, you know, I don't want to get too broad, but this is an enduring debate sort of between, broadly speaking, you know, the the right and the left. There's a sense among conservatives that um, while many things seem to change, the fundamentals always come back. Uh, and the fundamentals include war, crime, savagery. Um, as we saw this past year and a half, plagues, um, you know, uh, we... we, we, we Plagues, floods, 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 floods. Yes, there you go. Yes. So like, you know, there's a, there's a wish and I share it to be out of the wilderness on, you know, all these fronts. Um, And, and when things are so good, uh, that wish is sort of fed and seems to almost be satisfied, but it, it, but we will never quite be there. And that's, and reconciling an extraordinarily comfortable population to that fact is, getting harder and harder and harder. But this is really, this is an important point because this is actually where Trump was such a failure as a, as a, uh, and clearly not a conservative because conservatives understand the fragility of the experiment that we are doing here in, in this nation and in, in the, the West in general. And so are eager to protect it and are willing to sacrifice and, and to have lives lost in the service of protecting that. Whereas if you're on the left, particularly nowadays, if you're progressive, you actually believe that if everything is destroyed that we have, you can build something better. The technocratic elite actually know how to do all of this better. So it doesn't really matter if all of that falls by the wayside. And I think the way that the Biden administration and its and its uh, foreign policy technocrats have been talking to the American people in the recent weeks shows that they really think like, you know, we got to get out of here and it's it's their problem. We've got better things to do. And it's it's so cavalier. Uh, guys, um, I, I want to talk to you about Dan Senor's post-corona podcast for a minute because uh, he's got a really good one up right now. Uh, you know, at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, post-corona, name of the podcast. I've told you about it. Dan, a uh, uh, member of the commentary board, uh, you know, was our spokesman in Iraq and, uh, you know, uh, works uh, in finance in New York, um, uh, has a has a fascinating, thrilling, fun conversation uh, with uh, with the political consultant uh, Mike Murphy about uh, what's going on in California. Mike, um, who is maybe the best talker in American politics, uh, was the uh, guy who ran the recall, a successful recall election campaign uh, for Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2003. And mo- most of the conversation is about whether or not Gavin Newsom is in real existential trouble as we approach the recall vote uh, in, I think, two weeks uh, in California. Uh, He describes how the recall happened in 2003, what they did to run the recall, how Schwarzenegger did it, why the situations aren't entirely analogous, 
how Newsom got into trouble, why COVID is posing a threat not only to Newsom, but now increasingly to all to governors, red and blue state, anybody who is like a serious person in charge of government from uh, DeSantis to Abbott to Whitmer to Newsom to Cuomo to whoever, now that Cuomo's gone, um, uh, you know, anyone who is like on the front lines of, you know, dealing with COVID is now finding themselves in a greater degree of political trouble than they expected to be in even six months ago. And, uh, and he diagnoses what he thinks is going to happen or what his sense is of how much at risk Newsom is. I'm not going to blow the surprise to you. Go download post-corona, listen to the Mike Murphy episode with Dan Senor. You will thank me. Even if you don't agree with him, it is one hell of a good time listening to that podcast. So go, go do that now. Um, uh, what do you guys think? Uh, no, you wanted to go to sort of Jake Sullivan and Blinken and everybody who was on the Sunday shows and the weekend shows and the kind of lines that they were uh, you know, tr- trying to cast on the waters to 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 calm things down. Where what what particularly struck you about the weekend's rhetoric? Um, I actually want to pull up Jake Sullivan's quote. Insofar as I can do that, I probably should have prepared for this moment better. Okay, now that it is well, let me vamp. Me. Let me vamp a little bit. Sure. Okay, so um, uh, Christine, um. These guys uh, have a hand to play, and and uh, you know there it is, and they have to do whatever they have to do to answer questions that are being asked of them. Um, and you know, when you don't have a good answer, sometimes you just don't have a good answer. And the answer is like, this is chaos. I mean, the, the answer implicitly seems to be. We're doing the best that we can. And you know what? If if your metric is going to be how many raw numbers of people have been airlifted out of Afghanistan, it's really big. The number is very large. It's a big number. Yes. So big. My head is exploding. That's how big it is. Well, that's the part that's frustrating, right? If they don't know, then they need to say so. What they should be saying, and, and of course, this is administrations don't like to admit error, but Ameri- the American people have a lot of respect for leaders who acknowledge when they've done something disastrously wrong. But what they should be saying is, you know what? We didn't have an accurate count to begin with. We never thought we'd need one. We This is a failing that we will in the future uh, try to correct when we have you know, foreigners in, in, in conflict zones. However, here is what we do know, and here's what we're still trying to find out. And so we cannot make claims about success or failure when we don't have actual data to support our claims. That's not that's the opposite of what they're doing. They're just throwing out random numbers and different agencies are even using different figures to all with the overarching message. Of, oh, it's fine. We're getting all the Americans out and totally avoiding the issue of green card holders and SIB status folks. Yeah. So there's so much to go through that it's it's tough to even know where to start. Um, so, yeah, apparently, and this was a fact check in the Washington Post, how we got from 15,000, which is the top, you know, the most, the maximum estimated number of Americans in, in Afghanistan when Kabul fell to roughly 6,000, which is now what they believe were the total number of American citizens. And that's basically what we talked about at the top, that they're ex- excluding all these categories of eligible evacuees because it's just easier to do that. And they're not being very honest about it, but this Washington Post fact check makes it plain that they just scrubbed the list 
of everybody who wasn't a passport holder, which makes it a lot easier to get Americans out when you artificially decrease the number of Americans who are eligible for getting out. Um, Jake Sullivan, who was a national security advisor, was on State of the Unions with CNN, Jake Tapper, uh, where he talked about uh, how, you know, where our commitment doesn't end, in, in which, you know, even though we've sacrificed all the tools to get to set, to achieve that and how he doesn't, he's not familiar with any, uh, any idea or anybody who's been turned away from these gates uh, by either the Taliban or Americans. That is just not true. And we have evidence to the contrary. Uh, we've had it for weeks of the Taliban turning people away um, up to and including uh, a lot of students at the American University now, which is something of a scandal because the Taliban uh, has targeted them. It's taking you know, triumphalist pictures outside of the American University talking about how these, these guys are next on their, their hit list. Uh, he also suggested that there's, you know, it's, it's insane to say that we gave the Taliban a hit list. What we gave them were the names of people that we wanted to go into the airport, none of whom have been turning, turned away. Well, of course, they are being turned away. And yes, that could represent a hit list. His defense of himself is that, well, you know, we can't be blamed for what the Taliban does with this information. But of course, we had to give them this information. And it's true. You did have to give them this information. That's the problem. The problem is that this operation was so stupid. Uh, on its face that, yeah, and so, and tied our hands so unnecessarily that, yeah, we would have to actually um, give the Taliban information that they could essentially use as a kill list later. That is the, an admission of fault, not some sort of a defense of it. Uh, later, Ron Klain, who's the White House chief of staff, touted this deal that they'd secured with the Taliban. Uh, 97 countries announced a deal with the Taliban to keep evacuating allies after 31st. I don't see any evidence of any sort of deal here. We've sort of unilaterally declared deal without any reciprocity on the part of our negotiating partners. And, you know, they're like, but we're not just going to take the Taliban's word for it, uh, even though we know that they've been blocking people from the airport. And we know that they're doing things like like hunting down and targeting people who worked with the United States. And lastly, there was this piece in the Washington Post yesterday, which was an absolute blockbuster. Uh, and you could tell by the way it's generated such profound consternation from the people who want this to be a success in some measure, um, which alleged that when Kabul fell, it came as such a surprise to everybody involved, not the least of whom the Taliban, who weren't prepared to occupy Kabul. They were facing down the prospect of what they thought would be the, the devolution of civil society there to a point that it would represent a threat to their to their nascent regime. So the Taliban's political head, head of the political operations, presented two options to the, the United States in their negotiations, one of which was um, the United States could maintain security in Kabul, which would functionally cede the city to the United States. Now, that would have been a big operation. So, too, it turns out, was holding the airport. They thought they could get away with, with 700 troops. It turns out it required 6,000. Um, but it would have been a bigger operation. We would have functionally controlled the city because we would have maintained security for it. And it would have provided us with vast sums of political capital, untold leverage over the formation of an interim government in Kabul. And Joe Biden declined because he wanted to get out, because he didn't want to augment the troop presence, which he eventually had no choice but to do. Um, and this was met with furious backlash from the supporters of this administration. That's not what that says. It didn't say that they would functionally cede the city. It said it would, they would give us control of security. Those are two different things. They're not two different things. They're the same thing. It's the office. You know, it's this, this is the same picture sort of thing. Um, and they just, they're so desperate to, to spin 
this president's uh, obdurate uh, attachment to the idea that we could get out of this thing cleanly, even though he subsequently has said, well, we knew we could never get out of this thing cleanly. Uh, they're just, again, trying to, there needs to be a German word for trying to win the news cycle at the expense huh. of the issue, because that is what they're doing. They've been doing it for the last two weeks. I just want to say one thing uh, on the pushback to that, to that article. The idea that, oh, no, we just would have uh, run the security, not run the city. Let's say that's true. So what? We would have run we would have run Kabul security, which which would have meant a lot more safe Americans and 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 American allies uh, getting out. OK, let, let's would have made the evacuation okay. a, a ton easier and it would have provided us with influence and leverage that we do not have and have desperately. Missed. OK, so following Christine, see, I, I don't really agree with Christine when she says Americans would respect it if the Biden people came up and said we made a terrible mistake. There's a reason politicians don't want to admit error. It's used against them and they're, it, 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 it's a disaster for them. However, you could see Joe Biden going before the American people and saying, we are getting out of Afghanistan. To that end, we are, um, in order to provide for an orderly withdrawal of our people, our materiel, and our troops, we have to commit forces temporarily to the theater to provide security in Kabul, to keep the Bagram Air Base open so that people and our stuff can come out in, a, in, a, in an orderly, secure way. And when that is done... We will leave and we will be gone entirely. That's the kind of honesty. In other words, like we are going to temporarily have to increase numbers. This is not like the surge. We're not engaging in any offensive operations. All we are doing is protecting the people as they leave and getting our stuff out of Afghanistan and making sure that the people who have a right to come to the United States can get to the United States and that will be done in a rigorous, systematic fashion, and it'll take two months, and when it is over with, we will be gone. Nobody was holding him to any deadline numbers. Nobody. He's the one who idiotically and depravedly said he wanted everybody out by September 11th to mark the anniversary. That was his deadline. This whole thing is his operation. He can time it however he wishes. That honesty he was not he was not willing to 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 do because there are two possibilities one of which is that uh, he's an idiot and that people said you know what we need to do is we have to hold bagram we'll fly people out this way we'll get them out and he's like no 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 we're getting out that's it you know who does that an idiot Biden is an idiot. Biden has always been an idiot. Everybody knows he's an idiot. Every Democrat who ever worked with him in the Senate knows that he's an idiot and a loudmouth and a know-nothing and that he's, you know, ornery and stubborn and nice and he doesn't, he's not mean or whatever, but he's kind of an idiot. And that is the most likely explanation for why this is the way he handled it. Or it was, he was given these choices. You can either surge the numbers for a little bit and all that. And he's like, I don't know, that doesn't sound like, you know, then they would, maybe our people would be sitting ducks and we would have to do X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. But I don't really think that that's it because he keeps making reference to this idea that if we didn't pull out, we would have had to put in more people. Well, pulling out also <laughs> means bringing in more people as he learned. But I mean, that was also predictable. Like if you are staging, you know, let me put it this way. If you are, uh, if you, if you put on a rock concert, right. And you put up the stage for the rock concert and then it's there for two weeks 
the, the crew can go home, right? It doesn't have to be there during the concert. Then you've got to strike the, the concert set and take the lights down and take the stage apart, to put all in trucks and take it away. Then they have to come back to do that, and then they leave and drive on to the next. And again, a weird analogy, I grant you, but the idea that it actually takes more well, especially to, Sorry, especially since the Taliban has banned the performance of music right. in public. But anyway. Yes, <laughs> yes. But I'm saying, but, but, but the idea that it actually takes more people to strike the set than it does to have things in an ongoing fashion. You bring a lot of people in to move, right? You don't have movers when you're living in the house. But when, as Noah will soon discover, you want seven or eight guys to come move your stuff for you because if you have the same, if it's just you and your wife, it's going to take three more weeks than it would otherwise. And a lot of things are going to break and on the way out, right? So yeah. this is not Speaking hard. Of, which is a- yeah. It's a digression, but I don't recommend moving at a time when there's expanded unemployment insurance. Yes. It's extraordinary. Okay, I want to get, I want to, you know what, I want to get. But, but briefly, briefly, yeah. but to, to respond to your point, that uh, the asinine butt covering doesn't just begin and end with the White House. It is it is in the Pentagon, too. The effort to defend the sacrifice of Bagram Air Base uh, in the dead of night in July, uh, as though this was a contingency we all planned for, um, is increasingly um tests your uh, capacity to suspend disbelief. The claim now that the most recent claim I've heard is, well, it would have taken 8,000 troops to hold Bagram. It's a 40 minute drive from Kabul. So you'd have to get civilians from the city into the into the airfield. It would have been a much bigger deployment and it wouldn't have been a much bigger deployment. We had to eventually insert 6,000 troops, right? And then the notion here that, well, it would probably take more to establish a civilian corridor, why? Because our entire operation is predicated on the assumption that the Taliban is working with us in good faith because we're operating, according to CENTCOM General McKenzie, on mutual self-interest. Our self-interest being that everybody, including the Taliban, wants us out by date certain. Why would that dissolve if we were doing that in a more expedited fashion? It's, it's, it's insane. It, does, it tests your capacity for reason. And I just again, I feel like they're just trying to get through whatever news cycle they can get through at the expense of the broader issue however they can do it. Uh, Guys, uh, I want to talk to you about our new sponsor today, uh, Super Beats Heart Shoes, because it's hard to make sure you're getting all the nutrients you need throughout your day if you keep a busy schedule. Work obligations, family, friends, hobbies, all these things get in the way of the essential self-care that makes you the best parent, spouse, friend, and employee you can be. That's why Super Beats Heart Shoes are an essential, could be an essential part of your daily routine. They combine non-GMO beets with a special ingredient, grapeseed extract, that is unique to Super Beets Heart Chews. Grapeseed extract has been the focus of scientific research for years due to its high concentration of antioxidants, which support cardiovascular health and overall wellness. The grapeseed extract used in Super Beet Heart Chews has been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. And you can't find this quality of grapeseed extract in just any product. This grapeseed extract is clinically studied, quality tested, traceable to the source, scientifically shown to support blood flow and healthy blood pressure. Healthy blood flow means more energy the way nature intended without the jittery caffeine or stimulants. And just two delicious chews a day gives the blood pressure support you need and the energy you want. So get your Super Beats Heart Chews today at superbeats.com slash commentary. And when you buy two bags, they'll throw in the third for free. That's superbeats.com slash commentary. Um, so uh, the Supreme Court, uh, we talked about this uh, very briefly on Friday. You know, uh, uh, 
canceled the uh, eviction moratorium, saying that it was unconstitutional without, a congress- without congressional action. Um, and uh, on September 6th, I think, is when the federal uh, subvention for unemployment insurance of $300 a week uh, ends. And um, uh, you would think uh, from the way uh, liberals are talking uh, that we are basically now consigning America uh, into um, uh, perjury and uh, and and you know and poverty. Um, uh, you know, eight hundred and fifty thousand people are going to be evicted immediately, and uh, there'll be no money, and there's no this, and there's no that, and all of that. Um, it is not the fault of the Supreme Court or anybody else that these two things have dovetailed uh, simultaneously. Had the Biden administration not. Uh, pulled this craven act of pretending that it had the right to keep the eviction moratorium going, uh, there would have been a full month between the time that the eviction moratorium ended and the unemployment subvention ended. And so that they're dovetailing uh, is a is a is a result of of of, of leftist political suck uppery and uh, and 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 it is on them. Uh, secondly, uh, everybody else in America is paying their rent. Let's just, let's just, you know, this is like the big thing, again, that started the Tea Party 11 years ago, which is this idea that we needed to suspend mortgage payments because 8% of people were finding themselves unable to pay their mortgages, while at in the worst financial position America had found itself in since the Great Depression, 92% of Americans were paying their mortgages on time every month. Uh, people uh, are, uh, you know, we have, we have privileged non-paying renters uh, over the people who own the property that they are renting uh, at extreme hardship to them, since I believe the number is there are 44 million of them or something like that who own one unit or one or two units or it's in their house or something like that. Uh, this is no joke, you know, that that we find ourselves in this position where people uh, are we're having their financial livelihoods destroyed by the eviction moratorium. And as Noah points out, um, uh, there is a labor shortage in fields all across the United States because the federal government and states, depending on which state you were in, were effectively paying people six hundred dollars a week not to work as opposed to work. Yeah, I, I want to go into that briefly because this was predictable as the sunrise. I predicted it on this podcast some weeks ago that <clears throat> there would be an effort to emotionally blackmail Congress into extending the uh, the expanded unemployment benefits that were the result of the pandemic. The logic for which has long ago evaporated. There are 10 million job openings in this country, but you see it in the press all over the place where there's this unemployment cliff is what they've taken to calling it, which is going to occur in in September, where people who've been enjoying this expanded, these expanded benefits are, that are pared back. And um, they, the expectation is that they will have to re-enter the labor force. Some are. But if you read down into these articles that talk about the nightmare scenario awaiting these people who've been on unemployment, expanded unemployment benefits for the better part of two years, uh, is that, well, you know, Americans really just don't want part-time work or seasonal labor you know, they really want, you know, a full-time job and in the field that they, they're really attracted to, which I'm perfectly sympathetic towards. At the same time, it is not the prerogative of the federal government to subsidize your dream board. This is not your their job. The social contract doesn't include that stipulation. And in the attempt to rewrite it via executive fiat now, which is exactly what happened to the eviction moratorium, the eviction moratorium expired in the fall of last year. 
and was subsequently extended, extended and extended again to the point where the Supreme Court couldn't defer anymore to the executive branch because it lied, boldface lied, said they'd allow it to expire. It did expire and then three days later re-implemented it in a most lawless, uh, contemptuous fashion imaginable to the separation of powers. Likewise, the, the judiciary has to rein in these uh, lawless efforts to use the pandemic to implement progressive policy wish list items that they cannot get through legislation. Well, and that's they, they knew they actually, you know, Biden himself said the quiet part out loud, like, you know, Congress isn't going to do this. So we're just going to gamble and see if we, we can get the court to do it. But I do think that one of the things I've noticed, particularly with regard to, um, you know, rent payments, and, and we should note that Elon Omar wants to extend this to mortgage payments, there should be a moratorium on mortgage payments, too, um, is it is the kind of language of rights creeping into and expanding into areas of life, which, as Noah says, are not covered by these rights. So the idea that everyone has a right to housing, okay? So you can argue kind of as a moral case whether that's true in how society deals with people who, who lack housing. But there's no moral right to live in a certain neighborhood. So like the arguments, there's no moral right to live in a place that you can't afford because your your the money you earn doesn't cover your expenses. All I mean, one of the things that's baffling to me is that what they're saying to people who actually scrape by to save up to buy a home, for example, or to or to try to have a little side business renting out their basement so that they can help defray the cost of their mortgage, that those people are somehow who are doing the right thing are somehow now uh, responsible for bailing out those who want to live in a particular place without having to pay money for it. Um, that is, I, I think, saying social compact is important here because that defrays trust in our federal government by the people who actually support financially with their tax dollars that government. And there, one, one thing that's even worse, of course, is that one of the things that has made it hard for people to work or was making it hard for people to work, though not over the summer, uh, was the fact that it was uh, that uh, kids weren't going to school in so many parts, particularly in cities in the United States. And uh, who was uh, on the forefront of helping uh, teachers stay out of uh, schools? Well, of course, liberal politicians uh, who were in thrall to the teachers unions. So um, uh, one of the things that we hear is that it, there, there is a there is a potential crisis uh, a brewing because people will be forced to go back to work. And then what if they, because the Delta variant shut the schools down? Well, I have an answer to that. Don't shut the schools down is the answer. Now come up with whatever reason you think the schools need to be shut down. I can give you the counter example or the counter explanation for why you shouldn't. But in any case, you can't, it is like the chutzpah argument that it's like, the person, you know, the kid who murders his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. Liberals are saying we have to have all these things in place in order because because it's not fair because the schools are being shut down. But they're the ones who are shutting the schools down. And that is the mania that is going on. If you want to understand a lot of this about the financial consequences of the eviction moratorium and uh, and the labor shortage and the supply chain shortage and all of that, you got to go read my friend David Bonson's two newsletters, the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Go to dividendcafe.com and sign up for David's newsletters, the dctoday.com, which examines daily movements in the markets and the Fed and and whatever's going on in in uh, policy relating to the economy. That comes out at about six o'clock every day. Dividend Cafe is a weekly look at sort of macroeconomics, very deep dives into 
uh, China into the kind of uh, Fed obsession that has now gripped everybody that was last week's is why is it that people hang on the words of Fed Chairman Jay Powell as though he were the de- the Oracle at Delphi? This is not healthy to have a focus like this on one unelected person um, uh, controlling the world's economy. Uh, this is great stuff. Uh, from the Bonson Group and David Bonson, go to Dividend Cafe and sign up uh, for the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and um, management industry. Uh, so uh, we're all, of course, you know, horrified and 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 riveted and 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 uh, considering, you know, watching the nightmare of Hurricane Ida. I guess now, Tropical Storm Ida as it uh, ravages. Um, uh, Louisiana. Um, can I just add, ask a, 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 a question? I, I hate to put it this way because it, it already happened. Like Katrina uh, in 2005, I ended up uh, essentially shrinking New Orleans. Like New Orleans is a, is a significantly smaller population city in terms of population than it was in 2005 uh, after the flooding and so much of the housing was destroyed and all of that. Um, uh, sometimes a person like me looks at this and says, why, why, why are these people living here? Like, why don't they move? I don't, I don't entirely understand. They would say the same thing live. about you living in New York city though. I mean, I know I, I well, that's why I'm bringing so it up. Like, that's uh, why I'm bringing yeah. it up. That's why I'm bringing it up. So you would look at me it. and it's say, why home. okay. Right. But I mean, but I mean, Jackie Mason used to have, this is maybe inappropriate, but Jackie Mason used to have this sort of routine. It's like all over America, Gentile homes are flying around. They're flying around in tornadoes. And then you ask them, why why are you still here? They're like, my roots are here, but the houses are all flying around. I mean, I, I just, this also every now and then I think about moving to California. And then of course I read this thing about how there's inevitably going to be the big earthquake that kills millions upon millions of people. They just, it could be now, it could be 250 years from now, it could be 500 years from now, but they don't know. And every now and then I think maybe it would kind of be stupid to live in California. Like what if, what if it happened? I don't know. But there's, but there's a sort of uh, um, both a both a mundane acceptance of the fatalism of those events. If you live in one of these regions, ask anyone who lives in Japan, for example, where there's earthquakes and all kinds of you know uh, extreme weather. And growing up in Florida, you just knew the hurricane evacuation route, and you got on there. Now, the, I will say about this particular hurricane, they had very little time to evacuate, so people actually did get stuck because it, it increased in potency very quickly. And but it does sound like the levees uh, that were rebuilt after Katrina largely held, which which is good. One death, I think, reported so far, a tree falling on a house. It, it could have been much worse from, from what we're hearing. But right. I'm telling you, having grown up in Hurricane Central, you just kind of shrug and think, yeah, it's just p- part of life. Well, you know, where people really say that about, of course, is Israel. Right. Well, except so, but Israel, th- th- these are not naturally occurring phenomena, right? I mean, the whole point about Israel is uh, that they're, 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 Israel is a is an idea and something to which people are committed and a and a place that people live and they're not going to give it up without a fight and you, you know you can't fight Mother Nature I mean I had this experience I've been in I've been in Alaska three times for various reasons and uh, toured around Alaska and you go to certain places in Alaska and you're like you know people really 
you know, they're in the middle of summer, obviously, because what would I, and you're like, you know, people really aren't supposed to be, aren't supposed to live here. Like, this is too wild. To the bears. <laughs> yeah, this, this place is just too wild. Like, you really, you, you are really doing something interestingly, existentially risky, just, just saying, okay, I want to be as far away from, you know, sort of, life as possible and i'm going to sort of brave the elements to do that it's really kind of stunning and i there's something you know kind of amazing about it um uh that that that's that that, that this is the case but um you do have this sense and it's like you know those foolishnesses where it's like ah you know this is happening <laughs> we're back in the everything is the result of global warming have you noticed this too is the result of well you know Extreme weather, like there hasn't been extreme weather. I mean, I understand I'm not a I'm not an environmental scientist, so you can make fun of me all you like. But um, you know, I don't know. There were hurricanes before global warming. If global warming is, you know, there Hurricane Andrew was worse than this and did m- much more damage to this, and that was 30 years ago. So uh, anyway, I'm just I'm sort of struck by the fact that people are still living where they were hit by Katrina and then they go back and then they're hit again. And I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it, it's an interesting, uh, you know, it just proves that I'm a rootless cosmopolite uh, and, uh, and, and exactly the sort of thing that, you know, people accuse us or urban dwelling Jews of being that I sort of think go, go somewhere, you know, where like, you know, my neighborhood in Manhattan, it's on 50 feet of schist, you know, it's like way up on a promontory you can't get to me. Now, six miles south, down by the battery, it flooded, right? In the, in, during Hurricane Sandy, but not where I was. I'm up on a big, big rock. Okay. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, where I am when I'm home, uh, up on the big rock, uh, I am sitting in an X chair. I'm not, that, I'm not there today, but at home I have the X chair, and it is great with that LMAX temperature regulation to take seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling heat and massage in your low back. If you're feeling a bit warm this summer, you can set it to cooling. The air conditioning in your home or office cranked up too high, set LMAX to heating and warm up and soothe those tired muscles. It's got that dynamic variable lumbar support already best in class. Now with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Uh, so uh, I guess we're pretty much uh, done for the day, unless anybody has uh, an important thought or a TV show you want to talk about or something lighter in spirit to take us, to take us. Uh, I will tell you one weird story this weekend. I went to take my kids to see a movie at a mall uh, in Westchester and uh, we go in and we sit down and uh, the trailers are on and uh, we, there was, it was me, my, my, one of my daughters and my son, uh, 15, uh, almost 15 and 11 and uh, the trailers were on for four minutes, and we left the theater. 
because the sound, it was so loud. It was so loud that it was like, if I have to sit here one more, and I'm not particularly noise sensitive, but if I have to sit here one more minute, I, my head is going to come out of my, my ears. Um, anybody had this? I mean, maybe you guys haven't even been to a movie theater, but, uh, you know, if they don't turn, you know, it's like no one's going to movie theaters anymore. If you drive me out of a theater because you're setting the, you're, you're, you've got the trailers on too loud to try to conjure up a spirit of excitement. Um, you are literally no one is ever going to go to a movie theater again. Um, I, I will submit this with all due respect. Is it possible you're you just reached the point in your life where sounds no because my eleven year old our noises are perhaps a little more sensitive to them than normal? I've been to a theater and yes, I didn't recall it being as loud as it was. No, but it's really loud. No, but my and that's just my eleven year old. My eleven year old wanted to leave. That's that's what I'm saying. It wasn't me. I could have probably. Maybe you guys just aren't acclimated. To okay, there you go. I don't know. Anyway, so that was just the segment that I did so that we didn't end on the ad. So uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading the stage directions to you, and so this this uh, particularly chaotic show we will now bring to a close and talk to you tomorrow for Noah, Abe, and Christine. I'm John Podhoretz. Keep the candle burning.